Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 29. NASA's airborne telescope, called SOFIA, has many powerful instruments to study the solar system and beyond while flying at 43,000 feet. One of these instruments, called EXIS, can study water around young stars, on planets like Mars and Venus, and coming soon, it will look for evidence of water on Jupiter's moon Europa as a follow-up on possible water plumes spotted by the Hubble Space Telescope. Today we are chatting with Matthew Richter and Edward Montiel as they discuss their work on SOFIA and what their observations may reveal. Without further delay, here is Matt and Edward. We have Matt on the phone and Ed sitting here in the studio with me, but we love starting it off with just people explaining, you know, how did you join NASA? How'd you get to Silicon Valley? So Ed, I'll shoot it over to you just real quick. Like, how, how did you get into this room? <laughs> sure. Um, it was by Matt hiring me last uh, February or March officially. Nice. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I guess I would have wound up at NASA since I was finishing up roughly at Louisiana State University my PhD and Matt had posted looking for a new postdoc and I applied and he hired me so pretty straightforward was it always yeah. like I'm gonna work for NASA one day or no kinda? not even that I guess the, the idea is try to stay at least one foot in the door with academia and I kind of still have that right since I'm officially I'm a UC Davis employee and a federal okay. contractor here at NASA I guess if I can work it somehow into a full-time job at NASA in the future, then that'd be great. <laughs> how fortuitous that yeah. you, have, you have Matt right here who brought right. you in. So, Matt, how about you, man? How, how did you end up joining NASA? How did you end up over here? Yeah, so I'm also officially UC Davis, a researcher here. I don't <laughs> have a tenure-track position. I survive on the grants that I'm able to bring in. But... uh yeah, I went to grad school in Berkeley. I actually grew up in the Bay Area, so I knew about NASA Ames way back when. And when I was at Berkeley in grad school, we had meetings down there once a month for a few years, I think it was. Then I went away to University of Texas, got involved with the instrument XEs and our ground-based instrument TEXIs that we'll talk about later. Moved to UC Davis when my wife got a job here back in 2002, and I continued on working on the instrument, and I took over the instrument in about 2010 as a collaboration between NASA Ames and UC Davis. And it's worked pretty well. We've been, the hardware lives at NASA Ames, and I come down there periodically, and then we fly on SOFIA, which is run out of NASA Ames. Cool. Yeah. This is the interesting thing about being here of, you know, the different paths and the different ways that people work at NASA, whether it's civil service, contractor, postdocs, students, interns, there's all these various ways to get in. So when people ask, so how do I join NASA? It's like, there's so many different paths, but there's a lot of different ways. And you know, even like the scientific community, you know, just as Ed was saying, you know, keeping your hands in you know, in that community is, is crucial to eventually taking advantage of something later on. Yeah, it's important for us uh, as academics, we've got to keep publishing articles and uh, establishing our reputation that way. Cool. So for folks who are listening, we, we've done a podcast before talking about Sophia, kind of getting to the nuts and bolts about what it is. But I'll throw this to, to either of you guys, the short version of what is Sophia. Sophia is a 
747 with a hole cut in the side so a telescope can look out. Nice. What I call the basic version. And the advantage, it, it brings that telescope up into the stratosphere where you're above most of the water vapor. So you can look at wavelengths that you can't look at from even the best ground-based sites. The highest telescopes on the ground are, I think there's one around 17, 18,000 feet down okay. in Chile. Oh, wow. There are certain wavelengths that are hopeless from the ground, but from Sofia become quite clean. Yeah, it's interesting when you think of the telescopes, The you know, you think of the large telescopes that are on a mountain or on the ground, or these space telescopes like Kepler or like, you know, Hubble. You guys are kind of in the middle of those. Right. right. And there are definitely some advantages to that. Yeah. So talk yeah. a little bit. Yeah, Ed, what are some of those advantages, some of the differences? Right. So I got to fly this previous flight series my first time being on Sophia and seeing it in action. And it's an impressive feat that you have this telescope flying at about 40,000 feet roughly all the time and get to observe in the mid-infrared window between uh, roughly like four or four and a half microns to even longer out to hundreds of microns, depending on which instrument is involved. In XEs, mm-hmm. we go out to at least 28.3 microns. And that's mainly mm-hmm. infrared. Right. And just seeing that suddenly, if you were looking at the ground and you would just see the sky and our own atmosphere, suddenly it's a window at 40,000 feet that you can start seeing sources, planets, other stars. Talk a little bit about that difference of, you know, you guys mm-hmm. mentioned the water vapor and being able to see through that. And Sophia primarily mm-hmm. looks at the infrared spectrum. So why is that so important? How does the water vapor kind of mess things up? Yeah. So water vapor is a infrared emitter itself. It has a lot of glow in the infrared from its rotations and vibrations of its a molecule, right? It's two hydrogen and one oxygen and it can spin, it can vibrate, and that energy that's released is light that we also observe from other sources. And when we get to uh, the stratosphere, two things really happen. The, the amount of water above the airplane, above our telescope, is dramatically lower. You know, it's like, oh, compared to a good night on Mauna Kea, it can easily be 100 times lower. But then also, because we're at such a high altitude, the pressure is so much lower. And so these lines, these molecular features that Ed mentioned, they're a lot narrower. The, they're not, the molecules aren't bumping into each other, so they're not broadened because of that. And so even if there is a strong feature, uh, particularly, say, of water vapor, we are able to look just at a slight shift. Earth's motion about the sun can shift the, the f- wavelength of light from water vapor in some source enough that we can see it. Oh, wow. So talk a little bit about, you know, you're on this plane. I'd imagine that you're in a cabin, you know, people are working, being a 747, normally a space telescope has all these restrictions about its weight and, you know, getting things just picture perfectly going there. But fortunately for you guys, since it's going up and down, how, how does the weight of the instruments play in? Or can you even switch out different instruments? We'll have a little bit more flexibility. Right. Uh, so what I can see, right, Sophia has about seven instruments that swap out depending on what science wants to be done that night. And you have blocks, right? So you have, like, say, a week of Xe's observations back to back to back. And then they'll switch in another one, uh, such as GREAT, which is a German instrument, or HAWK, which is a NASA Ames facility instrument. 
And in terms of weight, Matt, since you started with Sophia and putting it on the plan, I don't know what type of limits you guys had or what the, what the instructions were. Yeah, so if I remember right, then there's no guarantee of that. I think it's about <laughs> 1,200 pounds. Oh, wow. The weight limit. Um, Xyz is definitely lighter than that. But there are some instruments that come up to the uh, close to the limit. Hawk Plus is particularly a big instrument, and so it, I think it's closer to the weight limit. Xyz is a long instrument. The heart of it is a one optic that's about a meter long. Uh, it's this diffraction grating that's very carefully built. That single piece of aluminum weighs 32 pounds. Putting something a meter long that weighs 32 pounds up on a satellite would be really challenging. (laughs) Especially when you consider all the rest of the optics and mechanical support that has to go around it. Talk a little bit about Xyz, because this is one of, like, what, seven instruments that Sophia potentially has. So what exactly, I mean, just getting down to it, what is Xyz and what makes it different from the other instruments? So, Ed, I want you to do this first so that way I can see how much you've learned. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So, Xyz stands for the Echelon Cross Echelle Spectrograph, or I always do get the two because it has an Echelle and an Echelon. What that allows for is that we can do what's considered very high resolution so we can take the light that comes from these astronomical objects and look at it very, you know, fine tooth with the, by wavelength of light, so we can get, you know, up to parts in one in 100,000 of resolving Mm -hmm. the individual wavelengths of light from an object. And it's primarily, it's good at, of course, resolving molecular features in the atmospheres of planets in our solar system and young stellar objects around evolved stars. It allows, you know, much better sensitivity than you would, of course, from the ground being on Sophia. So this is a, a spectrometer, right, not so infrared. Or, it is. Or is, or is it, it's an infrared spectrometer. Okay. <laughs> All of the above. <laughs> it's different than, of course, being a, like we think of like a camera where you would take a photo and get an image of what you're looking at. We take the light and think about in the optical, which what we see when you pass light through a prism, you get the rainbow. Mm-hmm. We're just doing that effect in the infrared. So taking that light and spreading it out into its individual components. That sound right to you, Matt? Yeah, <laughs> Ed still has a job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, the one thing Ed had mentioned earlier that for Xyz, we're a, a mid-infrared instrument. So we go from about 5 to 28 microns or so. That's limited by the detector and some of the optics that we chose to use. And getting back to your question about the what's different us compared to other instruments, well, some of the other instruments on SOFIA go out to a couple hundred microns. And they're, so they're observing at much longer wavelengths. And then there are a couple that are at even shorter wavelengths. There's another SOFIA instrument for the mid-infrared, but it's a camera. Uh, so it's not separating the light much. It does have that type of mode, a spectroscopic mode, but mostly it's taking pictures in different filters, whereas we're putting a a slit up on the sky and spreading the light out to get sources emission as a function of wavelength. what light is coming from the object as a function of wavelength. So if I understand it right, basically we're thinking of a spectrometer that is bringing in light in like a prism, 
dividing it in so you can see what those subcomponents, I guess, are. And why is that important? Each individual element has, right, or, you know, in any atom, you have transitions, let's say, initially in electrons. They go up and down in energy levels. And mm-hmm. when they move, mainly when they move, either if they go from a lower energy state to a higher energy state, they take in energy or light. And so in a spectrum, if you're looking at it and you see, let's say something's flat and then a dip and then it comes back, then that's light of a particular wavelength being taken away. And that can tell you, let's say, maybe that you see oxygen there if it's okay. a certain at a certain wavelength. Or if you see light where suddenly you have a bright spot, it's being emitted, and that's the atom itself, the electron moving down in energy and emitting the photon that we can see at that wavelength. It's, it brings back memories of a college chemistry class where they burned different chemicals and you can see like the different colors and so it's like all right if it's blue you know it's oxygen or if it, i'm probably mixing up right. these wrong <laughs> colors but that's exactly the right idea yeah you know, you've got that physics lab or chemistry lab where up in front there's a gas discharge tube and you've got some little spectrometer or something that lets you try and identify what gases are in the tube I know it's something we do with undergraduates here at Davis. Excellent. And and so then that plays in really well because, like, if you guys are looking at stars or even looking at Mars for that matter, you know, you're looking at different objects in space, by looking at it with these instruments, you can kind of tell what they're made of. Right. So go into a little bit of that. What are some of the cool things you guys have looked at? So one thing I want to go back a little bit, you know, we were talking about atoms and all that, but I remember when I was a grad student and – Maybe this was late. I don't know, Ed, you might have learned this earlier, but the idea that molecules can do this emission at just by how they're rotating, and they can't rotate at whatever speed they want. Quantum mechanics says exactly how fast different molecules can rotate. And in order to change uh, that rotation frequency, they have to give out a photon. It, it's going to be a really low energy photon, but it's still it's 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 not at uh, any frequency. It's set by the quantum mechanics, and I remember the class where I learned about that, and it was kind of wow, that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> it was something new for me. So in general, with exes in particular, I, I like to think about it as how we're using molecules both to study the the chemistry that's going on in objects. So how many molecules are there? What type are they? Uh, Just to to learn about how the the molecules in space are getting built up or getting changed over time. Or the other way we can use them is as diagnostics of what the gas in general is doing or what temperature it is. We can use this emission to say, oh, well, that gas is coming towards us or that gas is moving away from us. Or maybe if it's in a disk, it's doing both. The molecular features can be used to study the chemistry, study the molecules themselves, or as a proxy for what the the broader gas is doing. One of the cool things that we've done, at least cool for me, uh, is looking at water vapor. Water is a really simple molecule. It's common in space, but it's really hard to study from Earth. 
Yeah, I was going to say, we, we, we had a podcast. I mean, we sometimes we'll do the conversational podcast, but we also have done reads of like um, web features that show up on NASA.gov. And there was one uh-huh. not relatively recently where it talked about water vapor around a protostar. So, yeah, Mac, talk about that. That's one thing that we did on our very first flight was that we took some observations. It was this star about 10 times more massive than the sun, but it's still in the gas and dust that it was formed out of, so you can't see it visibly at all. Mm -hmm. All the light from that massive star is getting intercepted by dust and heating up the dust. Well, because the dust is getting warmer, it's giving off a lot of infrared radiation. So it's really a pretty bright source in the infrared. And what we can do is use it as a background lamp mm-hmm. and look and ask about, okay, what's the gas in between us and that star? What do we see taking photons out, like Ed was describing, absorption lines? The other thing about when the the star heats up the surrounding dust is any molecules that had coated on the dust or maybe that it formed from smaller atoms or molecules that had coated onto the dust, they get released again into the gas. And actually, because of our high spectral resolution, how finely we separate the light, we're really good at studying gas features. So on this flight, we were able to look and ask about how much water vapor there was towards this protostar and what temperature it was and what velocity it was moving. And it turns out it was moving away from the star at about 10 kilometers a second, if I remember right. Actually, that sounds a little low. I think it might have been a little (laughs) faster than that. And it was a temperature of several hundred Kelvin. This was just something new that people hadn't really been able to study in the same way. We are following up on a a satellite that went up in the 90s where they could look at a lot more wavelengths but not spread the light out so finely. And so they were just saying, well, overall it looks like uh, we had a temperature and an abundance that fit all these different wavelengths. But in some cases, they had lots of lines that got smushed together because they weren't spreading the features out. So we were able to do a little bit better job than that. So stepping back, even away from some of the stars, you guys have been able to look at some cool things like in our own solar system. So maybe we can do a little tour, (laughs) talk about some of the cool stuff that you guys have found, you know, closer in our neighborhood. From the most recent flight series that I was on, we did some observation we we were able to map across the disk of venus oh cool where we got to we tried to look help a guest um observer track the ratio of deuterium which is a isotope so just like hydrogen is one proton one electron if you add one neutron to the nucleus then Mm -hmm. it's still hydrogen but it's it's just called heavy hydrogen so it's called deuterium and the ratio of deuterium to regular hydrogen, that ratio is done through looking at, of course, heavy water to water, HDO to H2O. Okay. And that will allow the observers to track the water loss history on Venus, since it's believed that Venus early yeah. in the solar system had an ocean, much like Earth did, and 
over time lost that ocean. That's kind of in that greenhouse effect that went right. crazy. <laughs> right. That was on this past series, and we also looked at Mars. Doing almost the same thing, looking at H2O to HDO to look at Mars's water history was one of the projects on Mars. Looking at Mars was also like something to do with like methane or looking at different... Right. Uh, so there's been throughout the last, I don't know, maybe it's 10 or 20 years, and Matt can correct me on that, but <laughs> there's been various detections of whether or not there's methane on in the Martian atmosphere, which methane is typically an organic, on Earth at least created, I believe, mainly through organic processes, and can be used, I guess, as a proxy for whether or not there's some type of bacterial life maybe or microbes on under the surface on mars and you know it's been seen that sometimes there is this you know big meth big i mean a few parts of per billion but methane abundance and then sometimes it's gone and so what is that cycle doing and Mm -hmm. uh, these observations help follow up a an observer who has some earlier detections or you know measurements for looking for the methane and also uh, nasa's curiosity has its own limits on the surface and can yeah. sort of track this. And so just following up and helping put limits on whether or not the methane is there in the Martian atmosphere. So far, uh, initial results from observations we did last March, uh, where the investigator has done some careful analysis and modeling, uh, is that we're not seeing any methane from those observations. But one of the things about this is it's appeared to be quite time variable. And uh, our understanding of Martian atmosphere says that uh, if you have a release of methane, it, it should get destroyed on fairly short time scales. Oh, I can't remember the exact number of how long it's expected to mm-hmm. live. But some of these detections uh, over the last 15 years, I think is a, a good number. It's puzzling how it can be there and then not. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that that's really well understood if we take the uh, detections at face value. One of the big things that NASA is looking forward to, of you know, not only like Jupiter, but looking at the moons like Europa and you know understanding whether it's like proposals to put a rover or, or to do more studying of Europa. W- what is in the works for XCs and some of the work you guys are doing Looking at looking at that ice plant and the ice moon, Matt. Did you want to answer that? Yeah, I, I want to take this one. <laughs> there have been Hubble Space Telescope observations of water coming off Europa. Hubble is able to use ultraviolet light, and the molecular transitions there are are stronger. And Hubble's, uh, yeah, it's a fantastic uh, tool, and so these are pretty sensitive observations. Well, Exes will be able to look at these vibration transitions of water. I guess I put this in the high-risk, high-reward category. Mm-hmm. And that my real expectation is that most likely we're not going to see anything. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's, you know, that won't contradict Hubble, in my opinion. It's just that we may not have the, well, one thing, there could be time variability, and in fact, Hubble has seen that, so maybe we're unlucky, but also just the amount of water and how it gets, the the gas gets excited and how it fills the Xe's beam from Sophia, all that makes it a tough observation. 
So my guess is we're probably not going to see anything, but I really hope I'm wrong. And you wouldn't know unless you look. And we're going to do our best to, you know, this is a three and a half hour observation each time. So we're going to make sure that even if we don't see anything, we're able to say, well, the fact that we didn't see anything, we can really say there couldn't have been this much water vapor emitting. And so hopefully we'll be able to get some good science in the, the limits that we put, even if we don't detect any emission. You know, this would be really cool to see things at the high reward. We'd be detecting water vapor that's coming out of the, or in between the cracks on the, the moon from that ocean. It would be great if XEs could cover more wavelengths at one time because then not only would we be able to see more water vapor lines, but maybe there's some other molecules that happen to be caught up with the water vapor. And we can set limits on those too. But truth be told, especially for the first observations, we've got to look at where we think we've got the best chance of detecting the water vapor itself. And we'll see if we can do that. And the chance for serendipity of other molecules is pretty negligible at that wavelength setting. The quest will continue, and I'm sure it'll be a hot topic from NASA. And, and even, you know, a, as more results, as more things come up, uh, we'll have you guys come on over to talk a little bit more about that. So Yeah. I mean, we're going to try this. We'll, we'll see. Um, the, the two cases, each time we're looking at a different side of Europa, and the Hubble observations seem to suggest that on one side it's actually much more likely that you're going to see something. For folks who are listening, who have more burning questions, anything to ask you guys, I'm guessing the best place to go is over to nasa.gov slash, I think it's Sophia Telescope. Probably makes the most sense to find some of your information. Yeah, I think that could be right. Or there's a a Sophia website. Whenever I put into Google rather (laughs) than a direct link, I, you have to make sure you say astronomy as well, because otherwise you get some <laughs> actress or you get uh, the capital of Bulgaria. So. <laughs> An actress from yeah. the Golden Girls. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so great. But then also for anybody who's listening who has questions, um, we are on Twitter at NASA Ames, but also the Sophia Telescope is at Sophia Telescope. Um, and we are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So anybody has any questions, feel free to go ahead and tweet us at those, uh, any of those um, handles and we'll loop back to Matt and Ed and, and, and get all the information out of them. So, But thanks for coming on over, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.